tonight. Um, we're going to get into the book of Romans, and so <clears throat> I want to thank you for being here on a Wednesday night, being faithful uh, to service, to our midweek Bible study. Amen. There's nothing that replaces just getting into the Word of the Lord. Amen. Amen. Also, just want to mention, I, I think we have, uh, Rita, you, you made uh, a batch of uh, vegetable soup, and homemade vegetable soup. And so after service, if you'd like to have something to eat, we would love to have you. And so make, make note of that. All right, we're going to get into the scripture. Let's uh, get into the book of Romans chapter 14. And uh, we are going to take a look here as we've been working through the word of the Lord here. Um, we're going we're gonna to jump into the 14th chapter of Romans. And uh, here we are finding the portion of scripture as we've been kind of working through the book of Romans. If, you've, if you pay close attention, you'll, you'll find that in Romans chapters 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, and 11... That Paul is working, basically discussing our relationship with God. He talks about just how we come to Him in grace. We die to our sins. We go down in the waters of baptism. We're buried for the remission of sins. We're filled with the Spirit to overcome the flesh. And, 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 and just all the ways that our life is aligned with God through our relationship with God that we discover through faith in Christ Jesus. But we find that something... His focus begins to change at about chapter 12 through 16. And now he's starting to deal with our relationship with each other. And we're finding the reality that in order for us to have a relationship with God, a right relationship with God, we've got to have a right relationship with others. Amen? We've got to get along with each other. We've got to... We've got to know how to interact with each other because in order for us to love God, to be a part of the family of God, to be a part of the household of God, we've got to get along with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Amen? Amen. That's, that's, that's sometimes it's easier said than done, but that is the reality of the Christian faith, that sometimes as Christians we will have disagreements. Sometimes we'll have differing opinions, differing views, differing convictions, differing philosophies, whatever the case may be, different convictions or lifestyle convictions, but, but we are all to be striving together for the unity of the faith, to glorify God with our lives. Amen? And so Paul deals with, here in Romans chapter 14, he begins to deal with how to approach the situation or the circumstance, the issue of disagreement among believers. Amen. Has anyone ever had a situation in your life where you just, you met someone or you come across someone or you go to church with someone and, and you realize that you have a lot of things in common, but there's just certain, just sticking points in the way you view certain things. Amen. How many know that can be, that can be a real point of contention. There are churches that disagree over issues. There's Christians that disagree over issues. And, and so we find that it's not always as simple and as easy and as black and white and as right and wrong as maybe we would like to wish and think that it is, but it is possible for good, godly, sincere people who love God, serve God, to approach a specific issue from two completely different perspectives and come to two completely different conclusions and somehow 
both be right or both be wrong. And so we're going to look at that tonight. How do we deal with that, all right? And so let's get into the book of, let's get into Romans here. I'm going to set my microphone down, and we're going to read through this as I try to get my computer to, to kick on here. But here's what it says in Romans chapter 14. It says, as for the one who is weak, we're going to read this full chapter here. As for the one who is weak in his faith, welcome him, all right? And so Paul's just getting right into it. He's going to, he's going to categorize kind of two varying just, just places that we can be in our faith. He says the first one, if someone is weak in their faith, that we are to welcome them, all right? We're not to judge them. We're not to ostracize them. We're not to cast them out, but we are to welcome them, but not to quarrel over opinions. We're not trying to bring them in to, to argue with them and to prove them wrong and to fight with them and to debate with them. I don't see anywhere in the Scripture where they're debating for the sake of debate, but he goes on and he says this, number two, verse two, one person believes that he may eat anything, all right? Now he's going to start talking about specific issues, hot button issues, polarizing issues in the church. There's a lot of those issues in the church, and Paul's going to kind of approach it with just a couple in mind. One person believes he can eat anything, while the weak person eats only vegetables. I just want to go on record. All right, we're having vegetable soup tonight, but that has no indication of the conviction of this church, all right? Amen. Let not, the, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains, all right? So now we're starting to see that it is possible for an issue like just what types of meat to eat or what types of food to eat or just dietary uh, beliefs or practices that it can be a, an issue of contention. And so he says, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. And so there is a temptation for some to despise those who would not partake in certain things. All right, he goes on, and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. And so we find that there is within this set of circumstances, within the uh, potential for Christians to disagree, there is two temptations basically at the core of this issue. One is to judge. How many know that takes place a lot? Sometimes they're Christians, they've got strong thoughts, strong feelings, strong beliefs, strong convictions, and maybe they're right for the, having those convictions. They've got a good reason, good justification for it. We'll look at this in a minute. But the temptation is, and what Paul tells us not to do, is to judge another brother or sister based upon your personal opinions. Just because you have an opinion about something, just because you have a personal conviction about something does not necessarily mean that that is the position of Scripture, all right? So who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another? It is before his own master that he stands or that he falls. And look what it says, and he will be upheld for the Lord is able to make him stand. Isn't that an encouraging portion of Scripture that you don't have to worry about necessarily their, where they are and what they're, you just just commend them to God. That's God's servant, and God can work on them. God can talk to them. God can deal with them. God can help them. It's not up to you to just straighten everybody out, all right? He says one person esteems. Now, here's another issue. He was dealing with, he was dealing with the subject of uh, them disagreeing about their food, and now he's dealing with them about the disagreement of their personal just observance of certain days and holidays. And so one person esteems one day is better than the other, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. And so whatever, wherever you are on a particular issue, Paul is trying to get you to strive towards being fully convinced in your mind. 
all right? And so he says, the one who observes the day, observes it in honor of the Lord. That whatever your position is, you need to do it in honor of God. You need to be doing everything with the motivation of faith and in a desire to serve and honor the Lord. And the one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord, since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. See this here. That it is possible that two well-meaning, intending, well-meaning, sincere believers would approach a, the same subject from two different ways, both with a desire and a motivation to honor and glorify God. For none of us lives to himself, and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord, and if we die, we die to the Lord. And so then whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. Amen. Keep going. Verse 9. For to this end Christ died and lived, and again, that he might be the Lord both of the dead and of the living. Verse 10, why do you pass judgment on your brother? Why are you judging somebody else? Why do you judge them based upon your personal opinion, your, your beliefs and your opinions? Now, now we're going to get into this. Don't jump to conclusions. But when we're just talking about personal preferences and opinions, you better be careful about that because you, your opinion might not necessarily align with God's word. And so don't be a judge. Don't be... Don't be mean to people. Don't be harsh to people. For, or you, why do you despise your brother? Just because they have convictions about something that you don't feel necessarily strong about. You don't know their story. You don't know why. You don't know their history. You don't know their personal struggles or uh, just proclivities. You don't know what God's brought them out of. And so you shouldn't despise them because they have a personal conviction about something. They're doing that in order to serve God, to honor God. And they may be just a little misguided perhaps, or maybe they have a conviction about something you don't feel strong about, but you are to, you are to abstain from, uh, from uh, what is the word, despising them. Don't despise them. For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. Amen. We're all going to be judged not by each other, but by God. For it's written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee will bow to me. Every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of God to himself, of himself to God. We're all going to stand before God, all right? And so, therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block. All right, here we go. Or hindrance in the way of a brother. Now he's getting a little, he's taking it even a step further. Not only are we not supposed to judge, not only are we not supposed to despise, but now we have to be conscious of not conducting our lives in a way that would cause somebody else to stumble. Therefore, let us not pat, I know, go back. Let us not pass judgment. Let us not despise. Let us not put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way of a brother. Verse 14, I know and am persuaded in the Lord that Jesus, that, that nothing is unclean in and of itself. Now, this is a very powerful principle. Paul says that he is convinced that nothing in and of itself, that there is nothing in and of itself that is unclean. But it is unclean if you have a personal conviction about that. And if you feel convicted in your heart and you partake in something with motives that are short of faith and faithfulness and in honoring God, if you're doing it out of your own selfishness or you're doing it out of just uh, a desire to appease your flesh or you're doing it even with a, a heart that is full of conviction, that that thing can become sin to you. Right? This is, gets a little complicated here. We're going to try to make sense of this. And I know what I'm persuaded. Verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat. Now this is where it gets even more layered. It is possible 
that there would be nothing wrong with you eating a certain thing or doing a certain thing, and you are walking in the liberty of the Lord, all right, but you realize that your brother or your sister has a personal just, it's, 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 a, it's, a, it's a stumbling block for them. And if they see you doing it, and you do it anyway in spite of them, to despise them, he says that you are no longer walking in love. By what you eat, you do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. That we should not intentionally put in the way of another Christian, a weaker Christian, or someone with weaker faith or just weaker convictions, we should not put in their way intentionally stumbling blocks to cause them to, to struggle in their faith. I'm going to try to make sense of this, all right? So do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. Verse 17, for the kingdom of God, it's not about eating and drinking. That's not what the kingdom of God is about, but it's about righteousness, and it's about peace, and it's about joy in the Holy Ghost. We've got to learn to set aside our personal difference for the purpose of peace and joy in the kingdom of God. Amen? Whoever thus serves Christ is acceptable to God and approved by men, so then let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Amen. Do not for the sake of food destroy the work of God. Everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. All right, it is good not to eat meat or drink or wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. All right, verse 22, it says, The faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. If there's something that you know is going to cause an issue for a brother and sister, Paul's instruction here, not my instruction, Paul's instruction here, is that you shouldn't do it right there in their face. All right? If you have the faith to do it in the privacy of your home, own home or in your own personal life, that's between you and God. But if you know it's going to cause this person to have an issue, then and, and out of love and honor for that person and, 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 and the work of God in their life, you're not to intentionally do something that you know is going to cause them to stumble. All right? Bless the one who has no reason to pass judgment on himself for what he approves, okay? But whoever has doubt is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Okay, is there any more? All right, I want to tell you, this is a very, it, it can be a very complex and complicated portion of Scripture. I've, I've put a lot of, I've thought a lot about this over the years. Paul deals with this not only here in Romans, he deals with the issue of conscience, in the book of 1 Corinthians, chapter 8, he deals with it in 1 Peter. He deals with it really all in several places throughout the Scripture. And so we're going to try to make sense of what this is. Now, you've got to understand here that Paul was dealing with a couple of issues that were contemporary to the church there in Rome, all right? He was dealing with uh, two particular issues. Now, we could take an issue that is a hot topic or a polarizing issue for us in our contemporary you know, uh, church culture, but Paul was dealing with two specific issues in that particular church culture, and that was the eating of meat that was sacrificed to idols and the observance of certain holidays. Now, you've got to understand, and we'll get into this. My computer's not working, so Dan, you're going to have to work with me here. Paul was dealing with a culture in this day and age where the gospel was spreading from one culture to another. And it had started within the Jewish religion. Jesus came into the, into the context of the Jewish religion. He came to save the, the nation of Israel, but because they rejected him, that he formed disciples of 
devout Jews, and it was their mission to go out and to spread and preach the gospel to the whole world. That means different cultures, different religions, different contexts, different, just, just, just imagine anything. And so, and so as this shift was taking place, where the gospel was primarily just within the context of Jewish culture, religion, practice, and tradition. They had very strong beliefs and convictions as a result of the law of Moses that they were not to eat certain meats that were considered unclean or unkosher. They didn't eat certain meats like pork. They didn't eat shellfish. They had a lot of dietary restrictions because of the Old Testament law. And so as Christ came, fulfilled that law, they were no longer under those restrictions, but there was still that kind of stigma within the Jewish religion. And what was taking place as the gospel was spreading into Gentile culture that didn't hold those same traditions or sensibilities that the Jews had, they were finding that these Gentile Christians were starting to come into the Christian church that was predominantly filled with Jewish people with all these traditional Jewish sensibilities and practices. They didn't eat meat that you could go to the grocery store because the Gentiles would take that meat and they would sacrifice it to their idols and then they would sell it in the meat markets. And the Jews would not buy meat from those meat markets because of their, their conscience would not allow them because they feared that those meats were offered to idols. And so Paul is telling us here, he's dealing with this issue where the Gentiles are eating meat freely without any issue, and the Jewish Christians are taking exception and having a, an issue with it because they're not eating these meat because they're still under kind of that mindset of the, of the law of Moses, of the Jewish tradition. And Paul is trying to tell them it's not the meat that's the issue, it's the issue of your conscience. The meat in and of itself... God has called clean. There's no problem with the meat. God has sanctified. You're no longer under the law of Moses. You're no longer under those specific dietary restrictions. And so he says, if your faith will allow you to partake in the meat, eat the meat, but don't do so in a way that's going to cause you to stumble or somebody else to stumble. The meat is not what's important. The food is not what's important. The, the issue is not really the issue. The issue is that we are all striving together in the unity of the faith, that we're getting along with each other, that we're loving each other, that we're not putting stumbling blocks in each other's way. Okay? So we're going to talk about how to deal with the conscience. Everybody with me tonight? You guys all right? You good with me? All right. Man, I really wish my computer was working, but I'm going to just, we're going to do our best here. Now, let's just talk about, now, Paul's main issue here was the issue of the conscience, all right? Everyone said the conscience. Now, that's a tricky subject, all right? It's a tricky issue. It's a tr tricky subject because <clears throat> the conscience is, it's kind of a, it's a hard thing to really define, but in order to really understand what Paul is dealing with here, and it's going to take, this has taken me years to really think through and pray over and just feel like I've gained some insight into it. And so, and so I'm going to try my best. But the, the conscience really is, let's just put it like this. The conscience is our, this is Webster's dictionary he, uh, definition. It's our inner feeling or voice which speaks to the moral rightness or wrongness of our behavior. All right? It is our internal ability to perceive morality. Now, we have eyes. God's given us eyes to perceive 
the visible world, right? That's how we perceive the visible world. We have ears to perceive sound. We have taste buds and our nose to perceive taste and smell. That's how we perceive those things. But God has equipped within us what's called a conscience to perceive morality, okay? That's how we perceive what is right and what is wrong. It is our moral compass. And, and equipped within this moral compass, this spiritual just element of what God has put in our heart and our spirit as spiritual beings, it is the intention to do right. Now, I'm not going to have the opportunity to really just nail this down, but just understand that God has given us all a conscience in order to navigate morality, what's right and what's wrong. That's just an, even an evidence that there is a God, that we are spiritual beings, because if we were just, if we were just, 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 you know, uh, uh, just a part of evolution and just uh, the result of evolution and we're all just natural beings and there's no spirituality, there's no God, why, why would morality even matter? But God has put within us a spirit with a soul and as a part of that we have a moral compass called the conscience which is, which is set up to do what is considered to be the right thing. That's how the, the conscience works, okay? Now, we have to understand something about our conscience. Our conscience is our own internal moral compass. You might think of like, think about it like this, that our conscience is tied to our own personal perceptions of morality. And the way you might think about this is <clears throat> our conscience is not necessarily aligned correctly or calibrated correctly with true morality, God's standard of morality because it is our own personal compass or sense of morality and we uh, we all don't share the same morality because of sin we got to realize that God created us in that garden and when when we partook of sin that sin separated us from God and every area of our life was affected including our sense of morality our morality became skewed our morality became distorted our conscience became perverted as a result of sin all right, and so here's how it is. We have a sense of morality, but the problem is, is our, our, our moral compass is not necessarily in tune with mo God's moral truth. Does that make sense? You might think of it as like a car. Like back in the days, we used to have when GPS first started coming out, those Garmin's. Anyone remember those? Does anyone remember those little Garmin's? And it was the neatest thing in the world, but you had to like download, like update it like all the time. And if there was a new street or if there was a new interstate, and you didn't download your garment, like update your garment, man, you're no telling where you're going to go, right? And so it's kind of like that. It would kind of be like a plane or a ship that's out trying to get to a specific destination, and they've lost contact with their air traffic controller or whatever it is they're communicating with to get to that destination, but their, their equipment is not working, and their compass isn't working. And they think they're heading due north, but because their compass is distorted or their, 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 their GPS is not working properly, they're, they're getting off track. And that's how we all are. We all have a, we all have a broken compass. We all have a, a, a moral compass that is not necessarily in tune with or calibrated to God's perfect standard of truth. Does that make sense? Now, let's back up. Now, how do we get... How do we get in tune with God's 
moral truth? How do we align or calibrate our conscience? Well, we've got to understand that we have to align ourselves with the Word of God. All right? That this is, this is our this is our roadmap. This is our truth. This is our standard of morality, the Word of God, that this is the Word of God that never changes, that culture changes, philosophy changes, uh, uh, popular opinion changes, amen, political polling changes, uh, academics and what they're pushing and promoting, their agenda changes. Uh, you may be told to wear a mask one day and the next day you're not because things change. But I want to tell you something, that God's Word never changes, amen. That it's the Word of God that we need to align our life with. It's the Word of God that we need to align our compass, our moral compass with. It's the Word of God that we need to align our beliefs with. Amen? And so this Word is our moral truth. And so within God's Word, just hang with me. I'm trying to build a foundation. Are you still with me? Within God's Word, we have what we'll call close-handed issues, and we have what we'll call open-handed issues. This is all going somewhere here. Now, there are some things in God's Word that we need to align our conscience with, our moral compass, our beliefs, our theology, our doctrine, our, 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 our lifestyle convictions, our personal understanding of, of the world and our paradigm and so forth. There are certain things that are uncompromised in God's Word. These are closed-handed issues that within... The body of Christ, there, is, there really is no disagreement. There really is, there's no gray area. There's no, there's no, maybe it's this and maybe. There are certain things in the Word of God that are absolutely close-handed issues. For instance, if you don't believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God that came and died for the sins of the world and on the third day that He rose again and offers salvation freely for all men. If you don't believe that Jesus rose from the grave, then that's not really an issue that's up for debate. Amen. You're not a Christian. You're not, you're not aligning yourself with the Word of God. Amen. If, if you don't believe that, that, that Jesus is God, if you don't believe in the resurrection, if you don't believe in certain fundamental truths and doctrines within the Word of God, those are not, those are not up for debate. Okay, so we just have to align ourselves. It's not, there's just, just, just no wiggle room there. Those are called what we'll refer to as doctrines or commandments or explicit instructions in the Word of God. An example of this would be like in Exodus chapter 20, verse 15, where the Bible says, Thou shalt not steal. There's just nothing, there's just, there's just no wiggle room there, right? There's no, there's no gray area. You just don't steal, all right? This is not up for debate. But because the Word of God is intended to reach thousands of years of human history, various cultures, various contexts, various people and socioeconomic backgrounds and history, and because the Word of God is to endure unto all generations, God knows He cannot just give us a list of explicit instructions. He did that in the law, and the law failed to perfect morality. And so there are what we'll refer to as open-handed issues. There are some varying degrees of interpretation. There are things within the body of Christ that we can debate about. There are things within the body of Christ that we can discuss. There are things within the church, within the, the, the body of Christ that we can still get along and know we're going to heaven and go to church together and be friends and be friendly 
but yet have completely different opinions, thoughts, or views on. Amen? These are what we'll refer to as biblical principles that may vary in application. There are certain things in the scripture that are not commandments. It's not necessarily just explicit instruction, but these are principles. These are timeless truths that God has put in his word that are still just as valid, just as important, just as truthful as thou shalt not steal, but because it's to apply to people in different places, in different times, in different cultures, in different contexts, God gives us a general guideline, a, a guiding principle, a, a, a general truth that we are to take and apply to our specific situation. Amen? And so we take those open-handed issues and there's, there's room for debate. Amen? I don't know when Jesus is coming back. He may come before the tribulation. He may come in the middle of the tribulation. He may come after the tribulation. I can't tell you for certainty. There's a lot of disagreement in the, in, in, in the body of Christ about when exactly the rapture is taking place. But how many know we can all get along? We can all talk about it. We can all just, just go to church and have a good small group debate about it. You can give me your reasons. I can give you my reasons. And there may or may not be necessarily a right or a wrong answer. But the point is, is that, that we can all just kind of agree to disagree. Is that okay? All right, what's my next slide here? <clears throat> so that's the conscience. Now, you've got to understand that sin has distorted that. Now, while we need to align our understanding and our morality with the Word of God, that sin has skewed our perception of morality. All right? And... Even though in Scripture God has given us the conscience and then he gave us the law and then he gave us godly leaders, it was not until, it was not until the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and the power of the Holy Spirit and the Word of God that we were able to really get our lives truly in alignment with God's will. Let's take a look at what Hebrews says. Is that the next portion of scripture oh well let's do this all right so here's how here's how this works i'm doing my best here we can we can lose sight of god's truth both individually and as a society as a whole and we'll we'll look at this and it's really scary individually the bible tells us that it is possible for us to um, because we defy what we know to be true it is possible for us to even um, to distort our moral perception even more so than it possibly is already. Let's take a look at a couple of these portions of Scripture. Now, here's what Paul says to Timothy. He says, now in the, the Spirit expresses that in the latter times that some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves. Get this. They're going to depart from the faith. They're going to depart from the Word of God. They're going to depart from the truth. That means they knew the truth at some point, but the Spirit expresses that in the latter times because of culture and popular opinion and false doctrine, that they're going to be deceived because of spirits and demons teaching things that are contrary to God's Word, deceiving them. What does it say? It goes on. Through the insincerity of liars whose consciences, get this, don't miss this, their conscience has become seared. That, that because of their own sinfulness, because of their own self-deception, because of their own personal agenda that is contrary to the Word of God, they know the right thing to do, they know the right way to live, they know what's true in God's Word, but because they decide they don't want to obey God's Word, they've seared their conscience. Amen. 
It's like they just get more and more entangled in sin, more and more separated from God. It's like you just get on a path of sin and it takes you further than you ever wanted to go. It costs you more than you ever wanted to pay. And you get to a place where you just come to yourself and you realize, how did I get so far from God? Your conscience was seared. He says this, to the pure, all things are pure, but to the defiled and the unbelieving, nothing is pure. Have you ever met someone that's just like, my God, like what, what, where, like how could you treat a person like that? How could you do that? Where's your, where's your conscience? Where's your morality? It's, it's, they, they just, it's become defiled, but, but their minds and their consciences are defiled. We all don't have a conscience that's truly in line with God. Do you see that? As an individual, that we can get ourselves so mixed up and tangled up and just caught up and separated from God and separated from the Word of God. We can be deceived and we can deceive ourselves and it happens every day and it happens all the time. That's why we need to be in the book. That's why we need to be in the Word of God. That's why we need to be in prayer. That's why we need to be in church to align ourselves with the Word of God. They profess to know God, but they deny Him by their works. They're detestable, they're disobedient, they're unfit for any good work, all right? So as individuals, we can, we, can, we, can, we can distort our conscience, but that's not all. As a society as a whole, you'll see this. Our moral compass becomes more and more flawed, all right? The book of Romans outlines this. Let's go, let's go to the scripture, and then I want to I show you something that just absolutely blew my mind. I read it this week. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart. Now, Paul's talking about the condition of humanity. And we're going to get to the, our point here, but just hang with me. That not only as individuals, but our, our, our culture as a whole, our world as a whole is, is not aligning itself with God's words. It's getting further and further away from the truth. Our conscience is getting more and more distorted. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creation rather than the creator who's blessed forever, amen, verse 26. For this reason, because they didn't want to serve God, God allowed them. He gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women who were consumed with passions for one another, men committing shameless acts with men receiving in themselves the due penalty for their error. It's like they just got worse and worse and worse, and God just allowed their conscience to become more and more detached. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind to do what ought not to be done. I want to tell you, some people say, I'm, a, I'm afraid of having to just fall in line with, with the Word of God and the will of God. I want to tell you, the worst thing that could ever happen to you is not that you would come under obedience to the Word of God, that you would get detached from the truth of God's Word and find yourself falling further and further away from from God's truth. And so this is what happens in culture. We're seeing it play out in our day right now. Now I want to show you an article that I found this week. Is that going to pull up, Dan? Now I want to be discreet. I want to try to be cryptic, okay? Because I know we've got some younger people here. But this, this if you're not paying attention to where we are as a culture, I want to tell you it's a, it's a scary thing. And we are seeing right before our very eyes the moral decay and decline of Western civilization. It's, it's a frightening thing. It's scary to think of raising children in this day and age 
because we, when we took prayer out of the schools and we took the word of God out of the schools and we took the word of God out of culture and we quit aligning our culture with God's word and with God's truth, I'm telling you, our moral compass became more and more skewed and, and convoluted. And so what we find here is this Newsweek article that I read this week. It says that nearly 40% of Gen Z's, that's 1984 and up, and 30% of young Christians, young Christians, whose, whose moral compass, whose conscience has become so detached from the truth of God's word that they now identify as LGBTQ. All right? Now, I'm not going to go through this. I wish I could, but I want you to see something, that what we're finding, do you realize up until 1987 that in the American Journal of Psychology. It's, 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 it was like the, it's like the Bible of medical conditions and mental illness. Now, I'm not trying to be mean or harsh, but I'm just showing you the decline here. Up until 1987, homosexuality was considered a mental illness in this country. And now, what is it? Not even 40 years later, just over 40 years later, now we're proclaiming that up to 30 and 40 percent of young people are identifying with this. I grew up in a day and age which had completely different sensibilities, as is all of us today, and now we're finding that the moral decline, the moral decay is just taking off at a rapid rate of speed. I want to tell you, the more we drift ourselves from the Word of God, the further and further we get away from God's truth, and the more and more we get into all sorts of perversions and all sorts of false doctrines and all sorts of just... just inappropriate lifestyles. And that's why we need to make sure that we are committed to God's word. I want to tell you, if we will just stand on the word of God, if we will just hold tight to the word of God, if we are preaching the word of God and loving the word of God and living the word of God, I want to tell you, that is how we are going to make it to heaven. Amen. And so we got to stand on the word. All right. So our conscience ultimately can stray away from God's word but it's through the power of the Holy Spirit that he heals our conscience. Thank God. And it's the word of God that aligns it to God's truth. Let's look at Hebrews 9.14, then we'll get into this. How much more shall the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without spot to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Our only hope is through his word and through his spirit. Amen. It's his blood that heals our, our spirit, gives us new heart, new desire. We looked at this. And it's his word that aligns our life with, the, with God's moral standard of truth, okay? And so Paul is getting into this, and he's talking about how as we are all striving to come together, that there are going to be people that are going to come into the church. There are going to be people who are in the church who have various backgrounds, various situations, various experiences, various levels of understanding, various levels of faith, and they come to God's word all hopefully with the heart to do the right thing, to live according to God's will, but because of different relationships and experiences and context, we may not all find ourselves agreeing on particular issues, okay? And so Paul lays out some principles here, and the first one is that it is possible for Christians to disagree on open-handed issues. Now, we can't, we can't disagree on close-handed. There are some things that are un, 
that we're not going to compromise. We're not going to compromise. We're not going to compromise faith in Jesus. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life. We're not going to compromise baptism in Jesus' name. We're not going to compromise the infilling of the Holy Ghost. We're not going to compromise living a life of holiness and godliness and righteousness. There are some things that we are not willing to compromise, but there are other things that we should expect that some Christians are going to disagree on, all right? It's possible for us to disagree. Romans 14, 1 through 6. Let's read it. <clears throat> Receive one who is weak in the faith, but not to dispute over doubtful things. For the one believes he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats only vegetables. Let not him who eats despise him who does not eat. Let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has received him. Now, we're going to look at this. Who are you to judge another servant? To his own master he stands or falls. Indeed, he will be made to stand, for God is able to make him stand. So we find here that Paul categorizes these Christians as weak or strong in their faith, depending on how they approach certain things, all right? You know, there's a million of ways we could look at this. I was thinking about um, just an experience in my own personal life, about a time where I had a personal conviction about something that, that my friends didn't share. And, and it's interesting, kind of, I, I, I feel that it kind of illustrates how, you know, one, one preacher I heard said that, that personal convictions are like, it's like God addressing our allergies, that we all have different kind of just proclivities or weaknesses or temptations. And, you know, we may come out of a background where, you know, for instance, I'm just going to be honest, my, my dad was an alcoholic, uh, my uncle is an alcoholic, I have a brother right now who's never been to our church, and for my entire life he's struggled with drug addiction, heroin, everything. And, 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 and <laughs> I could go on down the line, all right? And so I know that from before I got into the church, I had an addictive personality. I had a proclivity towards overindulgence, okay? And so, <clears throat> so you know, there are certain things that everyone kind of comes into the church with, okay? And so we all have different weaknesses. We all have different strengths. We all have different experiences. We all have different proclivities, all right? And so God will deal with us according to our individual life. And in some instances, he will give us convictions about specific things in order to help us avoid areas of temptation in our life. Is that okay? It's like an allergy. Some of us are allergic to certain things that others, other, other, others of us are not. And the Holy Spirit, in order to try to get us all to, to the same place, will give us convictions about certain things. Now, I may know, you may know that you can go par participate in a certain thing that the Bible doesn't explicitly, you know, prohibit. And you can get right up to the line and you can still be a Christian and not be tempted and not be worried about it and partake in it and give God glory and not compromise your faith or convict your heart at all but there are some of us or others of us perhaps that can't even get close to that whatever the line is whatever the issue is because they know that if they get even close to it that they might be allured or drawn away by their own lusts because of their past experiences or because of the the proclivities of their own flesh or just their family experiences or whatever and so God will give them convictions not to even get close to a certain thing and we have to respect that and understand that. Now here, I was thinking about when I was a teenager, I had just gotten into the church. 
And I know this is just a silly example, but I think it illustrates kind of how this plays out sometimes. Is <clears throat> At my high school, I attended North Central High School up in the northeast side of Indianapolis. And it, at that time, uh, we had the state, we had the best rugby program in, in the state. And every year we would win state. And we would usually win regionals. And our rugby team was competing at nationals every year. And I, me and my friends had gotten into church just recently. And rugby was kind of like the thing at, at our school at that time. And, and um, <clears throat> all the rugby players got this big old ring every year. And it was like, man, it was like a Super Bowl ring. And it was just like, man, we got to get one of those rings. And so we decided to go out for the rugby team. And so we all decided, there's three or four of us that decided we were going to go out, try out for the rugby team, get on the rugby team. And we all did. And <clears throat> it was me and two of my other close friends who were both recently Christian. We all recently had become Christians. This is my senior year of high school. And <clears throat> as I began, as we started kind of practicing and getting into it, I began to feel convicted about playing rugby. I, I, I just couldn't shake it. And, and the more I tried to just wrestle with God about it, the more I tried to just justify how, why would I even feel a conviction about playing? There's, does, the, let me ask, does the Bible say anything about playing rugby? Is there anything in the Bible about playing rugby? There's nothing in the Bible. You can't point to a verse of Scripture in the New Testament or the Old Testament that says, thou shalt not play rugby. I can't find it. And yet, yet I was feeling serious conviction about playing rugby. And it took about two or three weeks of me just just trying to ignore it, just wrestling with God before I decided I, I, I just can't, I can't do this. And I talked to my friends, my two friends, neither of them felt what I was feeling and they didn't understand it. It didn't make sense. Now I know you're thinking you quit because you weren't good at rugby. That's not the point. I was probably the best player on the team. It doesn't matter if I was or I wasn't. I'm just teasing. But I was feeling this conviction I couldn't shake, and so I decided that I had to quit playing rugby. It wasn't right for me. And I didn't understand how my two Christian friends who just got into church the same time as I did, my friend Scott Newton, who we grew up together, he received the, the, the Holy Spirit right next to me at, at, a, at an apostolic church before we knew what that was. And now we're all playing rugby. My other friend, Randall Tanini, who is now pastoring a church in San Diego, California. Neither of them felt this conviction that I was feeling, and I, I, I was angry about that. I didn't understand that. And <clears throat> it's interesting that my friend Randall, he went on and he played rugby, and he was a great Christian, and he would invite the rugby guys to youth group. He would invite the rugby guys to church. He got them to come to our Christian fellowship that was there, and he was able to play rugby to get through that whole season and he was able to be a strong Christian and actually even use it to serve and honor God and invite people to church. It was an opportunity for him to evangelize. In fact, he went on to Bible college. He started a rugby club. He played at UT for a little while. And, uh, and he, he, it never affected his faith. But my other friend, Robert, who he, man, he was, he was built for it. He was, I mean, he was a great rugby player. In fact, he went to IU and he ended up playing semi-professional rugby over in England for a little while. He started playing rugby, and you could just see it over the course of that season. He just began to just 
attend church less, and he just started allowing certain things in his life and certain relationships in his life. And by the end of that season and on by the time for certain, by the time he got to IU, he had completely abandoned his faith in God. In fact, he went over to England to play semi-professional rugby, and he ended up getting arrested for international drug trafficking. He had completely destroyed his life. <clears throat> and it's interesting that neither of them had an issue or a conviction or at least confessed to having a conviction about that. But we find here that for me personally, I look back on that and I realize that for whatever reason, I don't think I could have gotten through that season and been a committed, strong Christian. I don't know if I'd even be here today if I would not have listened to the leading and the guiding of the Holy Ghost, the conviction that God was putting on my life in that particular day. Now, you've got to realize we're talking about the same rugby team, the same youth group, the same group of friends, the same season. One person didn't experience the conviction. He went on and used it to glorify God. He's now a church planner. He pastors a church in San Diego, California. The other person didn't experience conviction, and he went on and he made a disaster of his life. I was one that experienced conviction. I had the weaker faith, as the Bible might say. And I had to just follow the leading of the Holy Ghost because God knew that I was getting to a place that although there might not be a scripture in it necessarily, that I have a personal proclivity and vulnerability that if I continue in this, if I continue down this path, if I continue down this life, that it's ultimately going to destroy my faith and cause me to walk away from God. And so it is possible that Christians could come to the same subject and have varying opinions and varying philosophies and varying positions and convictions and all be in the will of God or not. So we can, we can disagree. Moving forward, two points and then we'll leave. I'm just going to give them to you real quick. It's in areas of disagreement, Paul's second principle, we should learn to set aside our personal opinions for the sake of unity. How would it have been if I would have just made an issue of trying to judge my friends and judge my brothers and just, just criticize them and just, just try to make life hard for them because they went on to play rugby, particularly my friend that went on and used it. There's nothing wrong. He, just, he would invite people. to. How would it have been if I would have convicted them or, 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 or tried to judge them? And what if they would have despised me because I was trying to perhaps bring something that they found no problem with under, uh, under the accusation or suspicion that there was something wrong with it. You see, the reality is, is that we need to learn to set aside our personal differences sometimes, our personal opinions, not our close-handed issues, not our core doctrines, not our explicit biblical truths, but some fringe issues that are not core essentials to the faith or just personal areas where God is dealing with us for the unity of the faith. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 8, 9 through 13, almost done says this, but beware lest somehow this liberty of yours becomes a stumbling block to those who are weak. For if anyone sees you who have knowledge eating in an idol's temple, will not the conscience of him who is weak be emboldened to eat those things offered to idols? And because of your knowledge shall the weak brother perish for whom Christ died. But when you thus sin against the brethren and wound their weak conscience, you sin against Christ. Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never again eat meat, lest I make my brother stumble. Verse 14. Is that it? Okay, there you, there you. So basically what he's saying that if you know that there is something that is going to cause someone with a weaker faith, or there's an area in their life that they know is going to, that you know that 
it's, it's going to be a stumbling block for them. Paul is teaching us that we need to set aside our personal liberties, our personal beliefs, our personal thoughts for the sake of someone else's faith in God. Now, that doesn't mean that we go around just adopting everyone else's convictions. But what that means is that we need to be conscious of other people and be, be aware of the fact that the, the more important thing is not the issue itself, but the most important thing is, 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 is our brother and our sister in Christ. Amen? Unity of the faith, maintaining a relationship, maintaining a good attitude, maintaining a, a good spirit. Number three, finally, we'll close with this. We should seek to maintain a clear conscience of our own while doing our best to avoid offending others. I'll just say this. <clears throat> it's interesting that I had a conviction about rugby, and I didn't participate in it. And God used that for his glory and for my good. I had another friend who did not have a conviction and participated. And God used that for his glory and for his good. But I had another friend who never admitted to me whether or not he felt a conviction about it. But ultimately, it led him down to just a path that caused him to walk away from his faith and destroy his life. I'm not going to put that all on rugby, but I, I, I just, you get the point. That we have to be sensitive to the reality that wherever the Spirit of God is leading us, that we need to be sensitive to God's will and respect others who are trying to do the same. And furthermore, we need to be careful lest we find ourselves under the conviction of God's Spirit, but because we want to justify it and rationalize it and just ignore it and wrestle with God, we would ignore what God is trying to do for our embetterment, for our good, and for his glory. Peter tells us that it's possible that some would use their liberty as a cover to partake in lasciviousness or sin. That some would try to say, well, it's, here, it's not here in the scripture. You can't give me a Bible verse. You can't give me a text. You can't, give me a, you can't point to it, therefore... Uh, I, I, I've got perfect liberty, but all the while God is convicting you and showing you that there's, that there's a different path for your life. And the scripture says if we are not sensitive, that we could per- possibly use our liberty as a means to commit sin and to, and to walk away from God. So we need to seek to maintain a clear conscience while doing so to not avoid others. Let's read this and then we'll, we'll end. Stand with me tonight. <clears throat> That's with no notes, folks. Therefore, let us pursue the things which make for peace. Here it is. Let us pursue the things which make for peace and the things by which one may be edified. Amen. Don't destroy the work for God, the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are pure, but it is evil for the man who eats with offense. If you're committing, if you're partaking in something that while the Bible may not explicitly prohibit, but you feel a uh, just an uncertainty in your spirit. You better work to get a certainty about it. Paul said, "Be be 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 certain about it. Don't 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 allow yourself to be to question your conscience because something that may be perfectly fine, if you're not really a hundred percent sure about it, you can cause yourself to stumble. It's good neither to eat meat nor drink wine nor do anything by which your brother stumbles or he is offended or is made weak. Amen. Do you have faith? Have it to yourself before God. Happy is he who does not condemn himself and what he approves." But he who doubts is condemned if he eats because he doesn't eat from faith. For whatever is not from faith is sin. All right. So there's a lot to say about this subject. I wish I had more time. I've taken you over eight minutes. But what I would say is the big picture of what this text is trying to tell us is that there's going to come occasions where we will have differing opinions. 
on certain things, but we need to respect our differing convictions and set aside our personal opinions for the sake of unity within the church. You don't know what God's dealing with someone else about. You don't know why they may be living for God the way they're living for God, but you just need to love them and accept them and just, just say that's God's problem, not mine. Amen? Amen. Let's bow our heads. Lord Jesus, we thank you for your grace, for your mercies. God, we pray, God, that you would just, just help us to draw stronger, God, draw closer to you, God. Give us a greater understanding, a greater love. We give you all the glory.